Well, it's good to see so many here this morning. We do have a, a good crowd and glad that you are with us. I guess that uh, for the most part, our holiday traveling time has kind of kind of come to an end, kind of get back into uh, our routine, although I do see Brian back here. Uh, he's a little lighter than he was the last time we saw him because they, they took out his appendix. So, uh, you know, he's not any shorter, but uh, anyway... Uh, but it is good to, to have everybody here. We have been in the book of Hebrews for several, several, several months. Uh, and we are going to be beginning chapter 13 today, which is the last chapter. Now, don't get your hopes up. We're going to be a while. But we're at least, we can at least see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, years ago when uh, first started taking kids on trips... And uh, every now and then we'd go out to Abilene for Bible Bowl. And you'd go out to Abilene and you'd come back. And, and you know, about the time you hit Mount Pleasant, all the kids are like, oh, we're almost home. And they'd start getting everything together and they'd start, you know, all that kind of stuff. Then we started going out to Ensenada, Mexico, all the way to San Diego. You know, go, go west till you hit the ocean and take a left. And so we'd go out all the way to, to San Diego, to Ensenada, and we'd start on the way back. And when we'd get to Abilene, the kids were like, oh, we're almost home. And they'd start putting everything together. So it's all a matter of perspective. We're almost home. When it comes to Hebrews, it just, I don't know whether we're in Abilene or whether we're in Mount Pleasant. But we have noticed throughout the, the book that the whole theme of the book is encouragement encouraging one another and our theme verse is out of chapter three but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness we've come to share in christ if we hold firm firmly to the end the confidence that we had at the first and so this whole letter has been written to encourage believers to encourage one another And now we move to chapter 13. And if you just kind of read through chapter 13, you might think that it is, and in fact, I think it kind of is, a bunch of random thoughts kind of just put in there at the end. And I understand that. Uh, Those of us who who have been teachers in in Bible classes, especially where we are on our quarter system, Where, you know, you come down towards the end of the quarter and whoever's in charge of the Bible classes says, this is your last Sunday. And you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I got to finish. And I'm only in chapter 10 of 13 chapters. And so that last Sunday, you want to get everything in there that you can at the last minute. Well, that's kind of what we have here in the letter to the Hebrews. The writer is concluding his letter and there's a bunch of stuff he wants to get in there. And a lot of it is kind of practical stuff. You know, we're kind of used to Paul's way of writing. Where Paul, in almost all of his letters, spends the first half of a letter dealing with some doctrinal issue. Some teaching about Jesus or about, you know, something. And then the last half is devoted to that practical section. Because of this, this is how we ought to live. Well, our writer in the book of Hebrews basically spent 12 chapters on doctrine and teaching. 
talking about how that, you know, what we have as Christians is so much better than what they had as, as Jews talking to the readers and how we ought to encourage each other and these types of things. And now he gets down to the last chapter and he says, and because of all of this, this is how you ought to live. And I think it's of an, an extension of what we begin to see in chapter 11. You remember that chapter 11 is that great chapter on faith where he defines faith. And then we have all those examples of faith. And then we move on to chapter 12 and what he really does is kind of gives us a motivation for our faith. Okay, This is why we ought to continue to have faith. This is why we ought to hold on to the end because look at what God has promised us. And now he gets to chapter 13 and says, this is what faith looks like. This is how you ought to be personifying faith in your lives. And we realize that our faith must be put into action. James chapter 2 makes that very clear. He basically says there is no such thing. And I'm paraphrasing James. But he basically says there is no such thing as faith without works. It's not a thing. Our faith is going to manifest itself into works and deeds. What we do, how we act, is a reflection of the faith that we have. You can't say that you have faith and live an ungodly life. That doesn't work. There is no such thing. And so I want to begin today with chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. And then we'll go back and pick some up. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of the lips that covers, that confesses his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The idea of our lives being a sacrifice to God is not a new thing. We're well familiar with it in Romans chapter 12, where he says that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that we are being built and we are each stones. Each of us is a stone being built into a spiritual building where we offer spiritual sacrifices. You see, we don't come as the Hebrews were used to in the old, under the old law. We do not come and offer the sacrifices of bulls and goats and the drink offerings and the grain offerings and all those things that we saw in the Old Testament. But we do offer sacrifices to God. Well, ultimately, we offer a sacrifice to God. And that is our Selves. And when our sacrifice to God exhibits, exhibits itself in the things that we're going to see here, then that sacrifice becomes pleasing to God. You know, we're also familiar with sacrifices that were not pleasing to God. You remember in Genesis chapter 4, Cain offered a sacrifice that was not pleasing to God. In Leviticus chapter 10, you remember that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, 
offer a strange sacrifice, whatever that was, that was not acceptable to God. And God struck them down. We also remember in Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah talking for God basically says, I am sick and tired of your sacrifices. I don't want to see any more blood of bulls and goats and I don't want you offering. I'm sick and tired of them. Why? Because their lives were not congruent with sacrifices. Psalm 51. We were looking at this in the guy's devo at our, at our youth retreat. Mark did this. And Psalm 51 is that Psalm of David after he's confronted by Nathan the prophet about his sin with Bathsheba. And he talks about how that he has sinned against God and he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and all. And then he goes on and he basically says, because the sacrifices that I bring to the altar, you are not pleased with. But the sacrifice you love is a broken and contrite heart. Then you will accept the sacrifices. You see, God does not want us just to present sacrifices. He wants us to present ourselves. Just as under the old law, the sacrifice of bulls and goats was not enough To take away sin, it took to sacrifice the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So God wants a better sacrifice from us as well. Not just animals and grain and drink and all these different offerings that they had. He wants ourselves, our whole lives to be a sacrifice to him. And he spends some time in this chapter talking about the essence of our sacrifice. And the first thing he says is, is that we should have brotherly love. Now, I want you to imagine yourself. Well, hang on. I got ahead of myself. Let's read verses one through five. Shall we do that? You don't object, do you? All right, verses one through five of chapter 13. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if it were, as if they, as if you were their fellow prisoners. And those who are mistreated as if yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Now we're going to skip verse four today. We're going to cover it by itself next week. But he says, first of all, that we ought to have brotherly love for each other. I want you to imagine yourself in the first century. This Christianity thing is kind of new. And you understand that committing to it, that becoming a Christian was going to be costly. There's a good chance that when you become a a Christian, your family will disown you. They may kick you out of the house. They may cut you off financially, depending on your situation. Your friends 
are going to blackball you. They're going to want to have absolutely nothing to do with you. They're going to shun you. In the community, you are going to be an outcast. Perhaps to the point of not even being able to keep a job. Perhaps to the point of not even being able to buy or sell with the traders in the markets because they're not going to have anything to do with the Christian. You are going to be a total outcast from society. Now, when you decide and make that commitment to become a Christian, what all of a sudden becomes really important to you? Your church family. Your church family. Others who have made that same commitment. Others who are struggling and going through the same difficulties that you are going through. Because you see, there is a love. There is a family. That is stronger than human blood. That is stronger than DNA. We are children of God together because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is even greater than the blood that we share as physical family here on this earth. And we need to have that passion and that love and that commitment for each other. That we're going to be there for one another. I've mentioned this before. Some of us are very blessed because we share a physical DNA or we share a spiritual DNA with the same people we share a physical DNA with. In other words, our physical family are Christians also. And so that, and that's wonderful. That is marvelous. But there are some of you here this morning for whom that is not the case. You are kind of out there on an island. You may be the only person in your family who is a Christian. The only person in your family who believes. The only person in your family who has faith. And so you, more than anybody, need to be connected to the family of God. And the rest of us have a responsibility to you to make sure that you feel welcome, to make sure that you feel encouraged, to make sure that you feel a part of this family, that we share this brotherly love. The love and fellowship and encouragement that we share with each other is a vital part of our pleasing offering to God. We cannot... Be pleasing to God. We cannot be offering a pleasing sacrifice to God. If we do not love each other. And support each other. And encourage each other. You remember the apostle John says in his letters. How can you love say that you love God. If you don't love one another. And Jesus said. This is going to be the singular mark of discipleship that the world is going to see that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I may be able to tell Jesus, I may be able to tell 
by whether or not you've done this or whether or not you're doing that or whether or not you believe this or whether or not you're following the Bible on that. But the world, the world is going to know you're my disciples because you love each other. And they're going to want to feel a part of that. So here were these struggling first century Christians who had left everything. It had cost them dearly. And he says, love each other. And then he goes on and he talks about how that we need to show hospitality. Now, I believe that in these verses, that the context and specifically, he is talking about our responsibility and our relationship with each other as Christians. Now, does the Bible teach elsewhere that we ought to be hospitable to people in general? Sure it does. That we ought to be concerned with people in general? Sure it does. Uh, you know, I, a cup of water and, a, and, a, and you came and you fed me and you know, all those kinds of things. That's, I think, in general. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? In general. But in context of the letter that he has been writing, And the way that he is wrapping this up, I think specifically here, he is talking about not just hospitality in general to everybody, which we ought to be hospitable people. But he's talking about a special hospitality that we have for one another. And again, you've got to kind of transport yourself back to the first century. You know, there weren't hotel six, motel sixes. There wasn't uh, Expedia.com. And when you were, and, and, and you didn't have a GPS, you know? Now, I like my GPS, even though, even though, guys, you're, you'll like, you'll understand me on this, guys. Even if I'm going somewhere where I absolutely know the way, like I'm going to Michelle's, I know exactly how to get to Corsicana, and I know exactly how to get to Michelle's house, I do not need my GPS. But I'm going to turn it on. Why? To see if I can beat the time. Because, you know, it starts off and says, you know, your estimated time of arrival is 3.30. Woo, we're down to 3.29. No, we're not stopping to go to the bathroom. I'm making good time. But they didn't have all that, so you didn't know you're traveling, you're walking, you're traveling by camel or donkey or whatever. You didn't know where you were going to be from minute to minute or night to night. And if you were a Christian, it might be very difficult for you to find a place to stay. And so he's saying, you take care of each other. When a new Christian comes to town, it's going to be very difficult for them to fit in. Some of them may be coming because they've been persecuted where they were living. You welcome them in. You help them out. The preachers that were going from town to town and place to place were going to need some place to stay. Be hospitable and help them out. Hospitality is one of the qualifications of an elder. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 where where Paul talks about this is how our renewed mind looks. He says practice hospitality. He goes on and then we see that he talks about having a genuine concern 
for those that are in prison or for those that are being mistreated. And again, I think that that is a a general principle that as Christians, we ought to be concerned about everybody. But in context here, I think he's talking about our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Many people that they knew personally were either now or were soon going to be in prison because of their faith. Because of what they believed in. Many people that they knew by name were suffering and being mistreated because they were a Christian. Now he really doesn't say a whole lot about about what you can do in that situation, does he? He says, but show concern. I would say, pray for him. Pray for him. Now, most of us in here do not know a single person who is in jail because they're a Christian. My guess is, very few in here. Some of you have had interaction with with people in other countries. Uh, Maybe that's so. Most of us in here do not know by name or specifically people who are being persecuted and mistreated because of their Christianity. And so we might kind of think, well, this just doesn't apply to me. Let's move on to the next verse or the next topic or, or whatever. But brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are in prison because they're Christians. Who are fearful for their very lives because of the faith that they have professed and confessed. And they don't know from one night to the next if somebody is going to come in and slaughter them and their families because they're Christians. And we can sit here thousands of miles away and say, what am I supposed to do? We pray. We pray for them. We pray for for the leaders of those countries. You know, we, we often pray, do we not, about the leader of our country. Right? We pray for the leaders of our countries that they would. What about the leaders of other countries? Let's pray for them as well. Because, and I, I don't want to be a pessimist. I want to be optimistic. I want to be hopeful. But in the lifetime of some of us here, maybe more so these folks. But in the lifetime of some of us here, there may come a time when in our own country, people will go to jail because they're a Christian. People will be physically persecuted. We're already being persecuted. But will be physically and violently persecuted because of their Christian beliefs. It could happen here. And if it were to happen to me, I would want Christians all over the world praying for me. Even if they didn't know my name, I'd want them praying for me. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said, I thank my God because of your prayers 
for me. You knew I was in prison. You know I'm in prison. And you are praying for me. And I can feel it. I can feel it. We ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. Fourthly, he says that we ought to find contentment. In verse 5, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The writer reminds his readers that money is not the ultimate answer in life. That money will not bring the ultimate happiness. That money will not bring the ultimate joy in life. We know that. Because we've seen people who have had more money than they knew what to do with who were miserable. Some even who have taken their own lives. Because they could not find joy. They could not find happiness. They could not find contentment. Even though they were wealthy beyond imagine. Being content does not come from money, but comes from God. In 1 Corinthians, excuse me, that's the second time I've done this today. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into the ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see what he's saying? Be content. Understand where your hope and your joy is. Paul goes on to say, you know, one of our favorite verses, right? One of our, one of our, if, I, if I was to poll everybody, say, write down your favorite verse. This would come out as number one. I'm convinced. Philippians 4, verse 13. For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound great? Taken by itself. Can't that apply in so many different situations? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I love that verse. And I love the the generalness of using it. But you know, that verse comes out of a very specific context. In Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. I've had a lot and I've had nothing. And I can do all things through God who gives me strength. You see, well, I believe that verse is universal and can be applied in lots of situations. Specifically, Paul was saying, I can learn to be content. I can do anything because God will give me the strength. Now we, in America especially, the idea of being content just doesn't jive with our American spirit, does it? It just doesn't quite 
it almost seems un-American. But I don't believe that what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 4 and what our writer in Hebrews is saying here and what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, I don't believe that what they're saying is that you shouldn't have any ambition. That you shouldn't have any desire to make things better in your life. That you shouldn't want to maybe provide better for your family or for your children or for your future or whatever. I don't think that that's what they're saying. What I think they're saying is that cannot be your priority. That cannot be what you base your hope on. Would I like to have a better job? Would I like to have a better salary? Would I like to have a better car? Sure. But is that really going to make me happier? I hope not. I hope that getting a better car does not really make you happier or more joyful. Yeah. Those of you that work, you know, would you like the promotion above you? Would you like a raise? Sure. And there's nothing wrong with that ambition. But you don't put your hope and your desire and all your joy and everything in that so that when it doesn't happen, you're devastated. Or when it's all taken away, you find yourself hopeless. Remember what Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust and fire and all those kinds of things. Right, Ronald? It can go in a hurry, can't it? All those material things can be gone in a hurry. Your company goes bankrupt and you're fired. And you're out of a job and you're 60 years old. Who's going to hire you now? It's okay. It's okay. I can learn to be content. I can do all things through God who gives me strength. Because I know what lies ahead. I know what God has promised me. And so we are content. And the last thing we see, he says, you ought to do good. In verse 16, he says, and do not forget to do good. And to share with others for with such sacrifice God is pleased. You know, isn't that a very ambiguous word? A, 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 a word that, you know, what, what does that mean? Do good. Be good. Well, we may not know exactly what it means, but we know it when we see it, don't we? And I was surprised, by the way, because that is such a, such a, a general word. How often it is used in Scripture. We know, remember, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We call that the golden rule. But remember, Jesus also said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the fruit of the Spirit. And I remember when we were going through this and we were doing kind of each one of them. I know which one was the hardest for me to make a sermon on. Not love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those were easy. Goodness. Goodness. What, what, what is goodness? What does it mean? 
Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul writes, As we have the opportunity, we ought to do good to all men. Perhaps you've been to a funeral service where in the midst of the eulogy, the person giving the, the eulogy says, you know, I don't know what more you can say about this person, but he was a good man. Or she was a good woman. Yeah, it's hard to put our finger on, but we know it when we see it. And we know it when we're doing it. We know when we're doing good. And we know when we're not doing good. We know when God would be pleased, and we know when God wouldn't be pleased. And you remember often in Jesus' parable, at the end of it, the master would say, Well done, King James. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hope at the end of my life that whoever is doing my eulogy Bryson, maybe you, okay? Whoever is doing my eulogy, that they'd be able to stand behind here and say, Tim Gibbs was a good man. But more importantly, is I want God to be able to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Marks of our faith. He defined it. He gave us examples. He gave us the motivation. And now in chapter 13, he begins to show us what it ought to look like in our lives. And how that we ought to, the spiritual sacrifices that we offer. That we ought to love one another. We ought to show hospitality. We ought to display genuine concern. We ought to be content and we ought to do good. Not only... Are we to encourage each other not to give up? Which is mainly what we've been talking about. But remember what he said back in chapter 10 too. We also encourage one another by spurring each other on to love and good deeds. If you're here this morning, there's some way we can help encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 
7-5-6-3-8. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.